The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your illustrious host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, the only, the very hairy, Tammy, the Squatch Underwood, who's flipping me off right now. That's not very nice. Hi, everybody. You're so mean to me. I am. You're mean to me, but that's okay. I don't know why you're so mean. I don't either. You bring it out in me. I'm just sweet and innocent. Pshaw! Pshaw! <laughs> I'm, look, I am in my mic. Okay, you're fine. Yeah. Are you, are you done looking at me now? Just present your shit. Anyways. God damn it. We're part two of Charles Schmid. Charles Schmid Jr. You know, the adopted one. <laughs> um, anyways, and um, <clears throat> last we knew that um, he, we think he killed the Fritz sisters, right? Right. Right, we think. We like, don't know maybe. for sure. <laughs> Anyways, the private detective found Schmidt's old business card in Gretchen's purse. So it only stands to reason that he would question the man, right? So apparently he didn't just ask Schmidt a few questions. Reports indicate that he like practically interrogated him and Richie Bruins several times. Where were you on the night of the 13th? Right. He like just knew that Schmidt wasn't being completely honest with him, that the guy knew more or was hiding something. And that's all I could say is, uh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it, man. If you're being questioned for a murder and shit, who the fuck? Well, we have had some that come right out. They go, hey, did you kill him? Yep, that was me. I yep, killed him. That, that was, was me. One. But 99% of the time, they're like, no, I wasn't anywhere near these people that you yeah. found dead. I don't know them at all. It's yeah. Like, um, you have their possessions on your couch and blood all over you. I don't know how that got here. The wind blew it in or something, and I cut myself shaving. It's always something stupid. Always something stupid. So when rumors ran around town that Gretchen and Wendy were missing, Schmidt told Richie that the last time he <laughs> saw Gretchen, she and Wendy were in her car, and they were planning on running away. Richie himself remembered seeing Gretchen's car drive by the house sometime around midnight, the same night they went missing. He said that although he saw it drive by, he never gave it a second thought. And when he was told that she left town, he actually felt a, felt a little relieved that she wasn't around anymore. Because, you know, they didn't get along at all. Uh-huh. So, um, again, Richie didn't give Gretchen or Wendy another thought until one night when he stopped by Schmid's one day. Then two men were sitting around shooting the shit when Schmid nonchalantly said to Richie, I suppose you know what happened to Gretchen. And Richie gave him a questioning look and said, uh, no, I don't. And then all of a sudden, Sudden, Schmidt spilled his guts to Richie and admitted that he murdered both Gretchen and her sister Wendy. He said that he did the deed himself right there in the living room where they were sitting at that moment. Um, remember, this is the first time that Schmidt told Richie that he had killed someone. Richie, again, didn't believe the words that his friend was saying were true at first. After all, they both would make up lavish tales of their supposed exploits in order to one-up each other and their badass reputations. Um... At least Richie didn't believe Schmidt's story until he looked up at him and then he saw it in his eyes. His friend was dead serious. Dead serious. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Schmidt described how he had strangled both of the girls to death before putting him in the trunk of Gretchen's car. He said that he drove them out into the desert and left them, quote, in an obvious place because he no longer gave a shit. However, Schmidt added this little comment at the end. Each time it gets easier. Oh, Jesus Christ. Kind of like eating ass. <laughs> no, it was easy for me the first time. The first time I ate ass. <laughs> she was like, hey, you want to try this? And I was like, yeah, why not? Sure, why not? You got a little bit of syrup or a little bit of jelly? Oh, no? Okay. Well, I guess we're just going <laughs> to raw dog that sucker. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's highly likely, considering Schmidt had dumped their bodies in the vast open desert somewhere, that Gretchen and Wendy's murders would have gone unnoticed. After all, the local authorities had already written them off as runaways, right? So, however, um, <clears throat> something happened to Richie that shook him up. That incident scared him so much that he started becoming more paranoid about the true nature of Schmidt's psycho psychopathy. All of the things, all of these things combined nearly drove Richie insane. And you'll see what I mean here in a little bit. 
Richie said that one day he and Schmidt received a visit from a group of guys that called themselves, quote, the Tucson Mafia. They indicated that they knew Schmidt and Richie knew something about Gretchen and Wendy's disappearance, and it would be better for the two friends if they just told these guys where the girls were. These guys knew that Schmidt had to- told Helig that Gretchen and Wendy had run away to San Diego. In fact, they told Schmidt they would personally drive him there so he could show them where she was. They told him to be ready because they were coming back to take him to meet another man named Charles Bataglia, a.k.a. Bats. Coming to take me away. Now, check this out. I didn't just assume that this story was factual. So I looked into this Charles Bats Bataglia fellow. As it turns out, he is listed as a capo for the West Coast crew or faction of the Bonanno crime family. Did you say bananas? Banano. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about fruit. No. A ca- and a capo is short for a cap regime or capo di sino. It refers to a captain or skipper rank in both the Sicilian and an Italian-American mafia. Uh, I prefer the cappuccino myself, but okay. <laughs> Shut up. A little it, bit of cinnamon on top. Lots of foam. Lots of foam. Creamy. In, into the little leaves and hearts. Oh, my God. I love it when I go out to a nice place and order something like a like a cappuccino or something like that, and they do little designs in it. I know that the after freaking, dinner espresso drinks. That's freaking badass. It man. is. It is. Like I try to do that, and I spilt it all over myself, and uh, it was yeah, it was embarrassing. Yeah, I've never tried to do the little designs, but some people are good at it. And I'm never allowed at Starbucks ever again. I believe that. you. It was, uh, it was terrible. <laughs> and they they were really disturbed when I dropped my pants. They <laughs> tried just... to make a design in your coffee. Yes. And they were like, why, sir? Why? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm giving my best effort. They're like, sir, we're calling the police. <laughs> You're like, at least let me put my pants back on. Big old sign with my picture on it. No, Scott. <laughs> no, Scotty. <laughs> no, Scotty allowed. No, Scotty allowed. Just like that. Just, just like a couple of Walmarts that I've been permanently <laughs> that, kicked out No of. shoes, no Scott, no service. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, you know. I go into some places and the Asians freak out. They go, oh, you will not come here. You leave now. <laughs> you scary man. You put your pants back on. <laughs> Good luck, everybody else. <laughs> That is my favorite fucking <laughs> Actually, here's one for our listeners. I, so, <coughs> Tam had to use my uh, my pickup. And uh, so she went and she, she's picking me up from where I was. And... Uh, oh, my God. You are not telling this story. Oh, I am. <laughs> so, I always ask random messed up questions. Very and messed up questions. I looked at her and said, hey. You think if two midgets are arguing, they're just arguing over little shit? And she looked at me. And she's, well, I don't know. I've never had a big conversation with one. And she knew that she'd fucked up the second she said that because now I'm laughing so hard, I almost have to pull my pickup over because I'm just dying. It was. You know, I know there are certain things that when I say it to you, as it's coming out of my mouth, I'm regretting it. It's like I shouldn't have said that. Oh my god, that is my new favorite thing for the week. I'm just I'm stuck on that. Are you? Oh, great, yes. great. Oh yes. All right, so let's so, continue on with the good old yes. Schmitty. So after these men questioned Schmidt, they demanded to talk to Richie as well. When Richie found out they wanted to talk to him, he was scared that they had already found the bodies and he and Schmidt would be, quote, taken care of. They also took Richie to see Bats, but then took him back home so he could, and this is what they said, so he could think about what had been said. <laughs> you know, like he's the dawn or something. See, that's even scarier. Like, seriously, if somebody was going to kill me, I would rather them kill me outright than send me home to think about that shit. Because my mind is my own worst enemy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mine, too. Mine, too. So Richie told told Schmidt that they should call Paul Graff and talk to him about what had just happened to them. During their conversation with Graff, he told Schmidt to contact the FBI. Surprisingly enough, he did. <laughs> you know. So when did Schmidt he contact con- Mulder and Scully? I don't know, because the truth is out there. The truth is out there. Yeah. <laughs> so when Schmidt couldn't get a hold of someone at the FBI that would talk to him, he told Richie they had to go out to where he dumped the bodies and bury the evidence. They had to make sure that nobody ever found them. At this point, Richie still wasn't sure he should take Schmidt seriously. However, he agreed to go with him. 
Schmid drove out to one of the places where they used to hang out and drink on occasion. And when they arrived, Schmid got out of the car and pulled a shovel out of the trunk before he started walking around. Richie saw him, saw him stop walking, and Schmig called out for him to come over there. As soon as Richie got a couple feet closer to his friend, he knew his friend was telling the truth because he couldn't mistake the odor of anything other than what it was, a dead body. Death! You know? Well, because that, you and I talked about, it, that is a distinct odor. Uh, yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah. So Richie got to where Schmid was knelt down over... A, quote over a black form that was lying out in the open desert. Schmidt told him that it was Gretchen's remains. Wait a minute, man! What's got to be a black form? <laughs> yeah, because it was it was baked in the summer sun. Remember this, man. BLM, bald lives matter. And the show must go on. <laughs> so Richie later stated that the remains were in an advanced stage of decomp, but he could tell that her legs had been bound together with what appeared to be a rag. <laughs> Wendy's remains were just a short distance away from that spot. However, when Schmidt pointed them out to him, he said all he could see was, quote, a, was a black mound with part of a leg and foot sticking up out of the sand. So now that Richie was out there, he had become Schmidt's reluctant or unwitting accomplice. He couldn't think of a better alternative to his situation at that moment, so he took the shovel from his friend to dig a shallow grave for the girl's remains. However, Schmidt didn't want to bury Gresham right there, so he took her remains, yeah, and drug them further down into the wash and buried her there. Uh, you know what smells worse than a dead body when you happen upon one? When the dead body smells on you, you yeah. just put your hands on this dead chick. Number one, you're leaving some evidence behind. But two, you, that, that, that shit doesn't wash that, out. Yeah, that stench does not go away. It's fucking nasty, man. God yeah. damn it, Richie. What the hell's wrong with you? Did you not get enough hugs as a child? No, or? This is Schmidt that did it. Oh, Schmidt did it? Well, mm-hmm. Schmidt's fucking retarded. So there you go. He's a short man with tin cans in his boots. <laughs> that is so, true. Yeah. He's a tin can man <laughs> living in his tin can land. You're sad. <laughs> so next, Schmidt grabbed Gretchen's shoe and threw it at Richie, telling him to wipe the prints off of it. As Richie obeyed, Schmidt bent down and took the shoe off Wendy's remains and threw it out in the open desert. When it was all over, Schmidt looked at his friend and said, you're in it just as deep as I am now. So the following day, Schmidt and Richie found out that the FBI had been to Schmidt's ha- parents' house, but then left. So Schmidt thought, Schmidt thought he was in the clear, right? However, that same day, the Tucson Mafia picked him up and drove him to San Diego. Once they arrived there, he attempted quote attempted to find the boy that Gretchen said she met there and he took a photo of Gretchen and started showing it to people on the beach asking them if they'd seen her he was bound and determined to play it out it might have worked if he hadn't been arrested by the San Diego authorities for impersonating an FBI agent (laughs) he's a smart one yeah so when they haul don't they have a height requirement (laughs) (laughs) you must be at least this tall to be a federal agent I'm telling you (laughs) and to ride that ride that's what I say to most women. No, I don't. You, you can be as short as you want. <laughs> I was going to say, when they hauled him down to the station in Cuffs, he called his mommy to the rescue. She didn't hesitate to run out to California to save her son, and he went home. That didn't mean he was home free. In fact, his problems were just going to get worse from there. When Schmidt returned, to Calif- returned from California, Richie's paranoia increased exponentially. He started thinking that a girl he had the hots for, Darlene Kirk, who also happened to be one of Schmidt's old flames, was on his friend's hit list. He was so afraid something would happen to her that he started driving by her house at night in order to protect her. You know what he should have started singing? What? Darlene, 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 Darlene. <laughs> really? You're going to mess up a Dolly Parton song? Maybe a little. Yeah. He's such an asshole. He's over here fucking up Dolly Parton, singing messed up songs about Tin Can Man. And I don't know what's wrong with him. I think he's mentally disabled or something. Jesus Christ. Oh, I don't think. I know. Oh, you're a twat. (laughs) So anyways, Richie also was jumpy anytime another guy even tried to approach Darlene. One day, the screen door in Darlene's house was cut. Her father accused Richie of the vandalism. However, Richie became convinced that Schmid had done it. He started hanging out at her house all day and night. And when he was asked to leave, he would leave the house, but not the property. 
Instead, he would just hide in or behind her trash cans. Dude. He's a trash can man. <laughs> grouch. <laughs> Oscar the Grouch. Oh, my God. It's Charlie the Grouch. Charlie <laughs> the Grouch. Right, right there. Yeah. Richie the Grouch. His paranoia became so bad that people started being afraid he would harm Darlene himself. On one occasion, Darlene's father came out of the house carrying an air rifle and threatened to shoot Richie. Rather than leave and not return, Richie turned around and said, go ahead and go ahead and shoot. It will end my suffering. So <clears throat> while Richie was going through his own personal hell, Schmidt met a 15-year-old girl named Diane Lynch on a blind date. She was a tiny girl who didn't weigh more than 87 pounds soaking wet. Apparently, the first time Schmid lays eyes on her, he thought, she's just my size. <laughs> Diane said that when she met Schmidt, it was, quote, love at first sight. She said that he asked her to marry him on her, their first date, this blind date. When she heard him ask the question, rather than run away, she just looked at him and said, okay. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So by that point, Schmidt had added one more thing to his quote image he had started wearing a plaster patch on his nose so when people asked him about it he told them that it was broken come on how dumb were these people who believed a doctor would set a broken nose with a plaster cast here's my thing with him though i've seen pictures of this guy he's not that fucking good looking but you know what he's better looking without this crap he put on Okay, I'll, I'll give it that. He looks yeah. like um, he looks like this one actor that played in a movie called Ghost Ship, and he's played in a couple of other movies. He's uh, got dark hair and looks very similar to him, but still, he's it's not like this guy's a stud. He's like what, like three feet tall or something yeah. like that with his tin can man fucking oh, shoes. Are you talking about the guy who um, played? Um, he also played Cotton Weary. No. Oh, not that guy. No, 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 no. I'd have to look up his freaking name. Oh. Um, I've seen him in a few in a, in a few movies and a few shows. He's he's re- he's a really good actor. Okay. Um, but you know I, I can't I can't really remember my name. But yeah, it's Scott. <laughs> you're a bitch. Um, <laughs> but, but this the, you know wow. Okay. See, so you're on your first date. This guy asks you to marry him, and you go, okay. You have tin can fucking shoes and plaster on your nose and you're wearing these prosthetics and you're trying to be better than what you think that you are. That was fucking idiots, man. You know, I don't even feel bad for his victim pool. No, no. Right. Well, and I did say here, you'll love my reference here. I said, how dumb were these people to believe a doctor would set a broken nose with a plaster cast? I said, seriously, it's not like he lived in Florida where people got Botox from fake doctors who were drunk on Four Loco. <laughs> I was just talking about that with the, with, 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 I can't remember, I think it was with, uh, I, I can't remember who the fuck I was talking to, but uh, I was talking about some of my favorite um, things out of Florida, and that one came up was the Botox yeah. doctor in Jacksonville yeah. drinking Four Loco, and of course, the... Um, the iguana that jumped the fence, yes. kicked the guy's ass, and then the Mexican <laughs> that jumped after in scrubs, it, in scrubs, yelled at it in Spanish, and they both took off. That's my two favorite. Yeah. Fucking, and the, it was a bandana wearing iguana. Yeah. I gotta throw that in. Yeah, it has to be that bandana. <laughs> yeah, but the, no, the I was iguana, just telling my best friend about it too. Yeah, the iguana jumped up and said "Ole, homie," and <laughs> whipped out a switchblade exactly. or something. But hey, it, it, it's Florida because yeah. you know. Uh, I wish I could remember who I was talking to about it. But, um, oh, no, I, I know who it was. It, I, 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 do I know? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was uh, when, when I was getting waxed. Oh, so oh, uh, Michelle. Michelle, and then there was another woman in there who lives half the time in Florida and then half the time here. And, uh, you know, we, we were all laughing about it. Um, you know, I said, because think about it, man. If here in the Portland metro area... Some naked guy fought a tree and then <laughs> humped it. We'd be like, dude, that's that's weird as shit. Yeah. And then in Florida, if it happens, you go, dude, it's Tuesday. That's yeah. not even that's not even a th- that's not even a crime here. Yeah. Because obviously his shirt is off. Yes, the rest of his clothes are too. And that's perfectly legal. <laughs> you know what? We've talked about this. It's only legal if they're naked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you, to fight a tree, you have to take your shirt off. Now if you have your mm-hmm. shirt on. That right there, my friend, is a crime. They will arrest you and mm-hmm. you go to jail. Or at least they're going to look at you, sir, sir, remove your shirt. <laughs> you cannot be fighting trees that's right. with a shirt on. See? See? Right here right. in the code book? That's not same, same. That's no, no. That's no, no. Now go fight your tree. And don't get the tree pregnant. <laughs> that's right. Don't get it pregnant. We don't need tree babies. <laughs> 
Oh, my God. Little palm trees running around, sitting there going, NASCAR! 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 <laughs> Wee! PDR! Anyways. NASCAR! <laughs> In fact, on October 24th, 1965, <laughs> Schmidt was wearing that plaster patch with his dark pancake makeup and fake mole when he drove Diane down to Nogales. So they could get married. It's immortalized for all eternity in their wedding photo. <laughs> That's even better. I know, right? I like this guy because he's such a fucking idiot. Yeah. So Richie found out that Schmidt and Diane got married. He couldn't believe that his friend was able to move on that quickly and forgot that he had murdered two girls. It only made his guilt over the part he played, feed his paranoia, and increase his vigilance over Diane, Darlene. Richie was caught making some threats, although the reports weren't clear about who he threatened, and the police arrested him. According to the reports, he was ordered to leave town for at least three months. The authorities hoped that would be enough time for him to, quote, get over his infatuation. Richie decided to go live in Ohio with his grandmother. However, he wasn't there very long before he couldn't take it anymore. He was a broken man the day he went to the police out there and confessed to everything he knew. The authorities in Ohio contacted the Tucson police and told them that Richie had what Richie had said to them. And the Tucson authorities flew Richie back and had him take them out to the location where he and Schmidt had buried Gretchen and Wendy. On the way out to the wash, he told them that he knew about Mary knew what he knew about Mary French and John Saunders as well. So when they arrived at the spot where the Fritz sisters were buried, Richie pointed out where each girl would be. The authorities dug in those locations, and sure enough, they uncovered the skeletal remains of both Gretchen and Wendy. They also found pieces of the girl's clothes, one shoe, and small wisps of hair. After making that discovery, there was only one thing left for the Tucson police to do, confront Schmidt with what they had found. So on November 10, 1965, Schmidt was outside working in his front yard when he saw some men in a car circle his block slowly. His first thought was that the men in the car were associated with the Tucson Mafia. Rather than stand outside in the open, he went in the house. However, the men stopped the car and went in after him. That's when he realized they were the police and they were there to arrest a killer. As they hauled him out the front door in handcuffs, he yelled out to Diane, Call my mother. <laughs> One of the officers heard him say, Catherine Schmidt will take care of this. A little bit later, one of the officers went back to his house to conduct a search. However, by the time he got there, Schmidt's mother was standing in the doorway, and she said that he wasn't going to enter the house unless he had a signed warrant in his hands. And then she turned around and called a lawyer. Now, down at the Tucson police station, the officers sat Schmidt down in an interrogation room and played the tapes of Richie's confessions for him. One would think that the tapes spoke for themselves. However, in a rare move, they actually hauled Richie into the room to face Schmidt himself. And they were hoping the confrontation, the confrontation would lead to Smith's confession. On, but once Rensky and Smith were in the same room, they had a glaring standoff. Literally. I mean, they stood glaring at each other. Suddenly, Schmidt said, I know why you're doing this. However, he never confessed to committing the murders. He maintained his innocence and said if they didn't believe him, he would, quote, just have to prove it at the trial. So the officers took Schmidt down the hall to book him on two counts of murder. During the booking process, the officer told him to take off his boots. He hesitated, but when he did, they realized that he was several inches shorter. <laughs> By that time... Oh, wait, it gets better. The juvenile hall he goes. <laughs> I know, right? By that time, press had gotten wind that Charles Howard Schmidt Jr. had been arrested and charged with murder. So photographers and camera crew piled into the room to get a shot of him being booked. As soon as he noticed them, he immediately sat down and refused to stand back up again while the press remained in the room. Schmidt's refusal to let the press get a picture of him standing up didn't stop them from taking down information about what the booking officer pulled out of his boots. In fact, one of the first things they noticed with the thing was that the things that were removed from inside Schmidt's boots filled two shoeboxes. There were several rags that were folded precisely, beer cans that had been neatly flattened and wrapped in rags, and several stacked pieces of cardboard. In a pear tree, in <laughs> a pear right? tree. <laughs> it's like, okay, dude, they've already seen all this shit. Just stand up. <laughs> 
right. stand up for your rights, motherfucker. And that's right. So Schmidt was held at the Pima County Jail without bail until his hearing, which was set for December 13, 1965. In the meantime, the authorities obtained a warrant to search Schmidt's house. They were looking for any evidence that would link him to the murders, but the one item they were hoping to find wasn't there. A guitar missing a string. Now, considering how easy it is to restring a guitar, it's not a shock to me that he had at least covered his bases with that little bit of evidence, right? Any moron would have. I change my strings quite often, actually. I was going to say, before Schmidt's hearing, an officer from the Tucson PD went to Connecticut to bring John Saunders back, back to face charges. And when the authorities picked him up, he gave a confession, but was adamant that Schmidt was the one who actually killed Aline Rowe. He just helped bury her body. Another officer flew out to Texas to pick up Mary French. When she found out that Schmidt had gotten married to a 15-year-old, they couldn't keep her mouth shut if they tried. She provided them with a detailed statement about what happened the night that Aline was murdered. You know, bitch, if you're going to marry somebody else, by golly. See, you can't find good women anymore, man. <laughs> what? Nah, I, 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 to, to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty sure that my girlfriend, if, if I was to murder somebody, she'd be like, oh, I'm sure you have a reason, Scotty. It's okay. Then, and they could question her up and down. She'd be like, no, Scotty was with me. We're okay. I mean, nothing's no, nothing went down. See, on the other hand, if they asked me, I'd be like, oh, no, he did it. You, you, you would, have the right one. You would walk down there and go, hey, you just now fucking questioned her. He did it. Here's all the evidence. I got his <laughs> fingerprints right now. I pulled a couple of his chin hairs out. <laughs> so that right. way there you can get DNA evidence. Hey, you want Anything me, else you need? <laughs> you want some blood? I'll fucking, I'll punch him in the nose right now and get you a vial full. <laughs> Just ask, just ask. Fuckers. (laughs) No, you know I love you. So when John Saunders and Mary French arrived back in Tucson, the authorities took them out to where they said her remains were buried. As it turned out, neither one of them were able to locate where the body was buried. However, the search team did not recover. They did recover two rusted hair curlers. The police took the curlers over to Norma Rowe. And she positively identified them as Aline's. After that, the authorities launched an extensive search. They even recruited a crew of students from the high school to help them dig in the desert. The search team dug up an extensive area from the location where they found the curlers fanning out in every direction. However, Aline's remains weren't found in that area. After the exhaustive search, Pima County Sheriff Walden Burr stated that the September 1964 hurricane that blew through the area may have carried the remains to a different location. I didn't know they had hurricanes in in Arizona. (laughs) Me neither. God damn. Apparently God hates Arizona too. Well. Can't blame him. I was going to say, hello. (laughs) So, Pima County Attorney Norman E. Green issued a statement of his own. He said the, quote, with or without a body, the case against Schmidt for the murder of Aline Rowe would proceed as planned. There was already precedent for a situation like that, and he had no problems exploiting the hell out of it. So, <clears throat> Schmidt's preliminary hearing for the Fritz murders ran from November 23rd through November 29th. However, on the 24th, the hearing was halted so that John and Mary French, John Saunders and Mary French could enter their pleas. Both had agreed to plead guilty to specific charges in exchange for their testimony against Schmidt in the Aline Rowe case. Saunders pled guilty to first-degree murder, and on December 1st, he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after serving a minimum of seven years years. Then, Mary agreed to plead guilty to accessory to murder in the charge of, quote, concealing and compounding a felony, and she was given a minimum prison sentence of four to five years. After both sides rested in the preliminary hearing for the Fritz murders on November 29th, the next day, the court ordered that Schmidt be bound over for trial, which was scheduled to begin on February 15, 1966. He had to repeat the process for Eileen Rowe, murder on December 13th of 1965. After two days of testimony from both Saunders and Mary, the judge made the same ruling. The Aline murder trial was scheduled to begin on March 15th. Smith was facing the death penalty in both cases. Now, on February 15th, 1966, Schmidt walked into the Pima County Courthouse dressed in a tan pants and a herringbone jacket. He actually looked very good because he didn't have all that shit on. With out all of his ridiculous face makeup and prosthetics, he looked rather clean cut and somewhat handsome. However, everyone noticed and made comments about just how small he looked without his special boots. Teeny weeny. Teeny weeny. 
Now, during his trial, he was represented by defense attorney William Tinney. Although Tinney tried to file a motion beforehand to have the press withheld from the proceedings, it was denied. Therefore, it was practically standing room only in the gallery. Pima County Prosecutor William Schaefer III was selected to lead the prosecution team, and he couldn't wait to get started. The judge presiding over the trial was Lee Garrett. He was an elderly judge, and the whole trial started off on the wrong foot when he actually made a mistake and stated that Schmidt had entered a plea of guilty. When a hush fell over the courtroom, he, you know, a hush fell over the courtroom, so he looked up, and when he saw the looks people were giving him, he quickly corrected himself before a mistrial could be called. Before Schaefer could begin with his opening statement, Tinney asked that the jury be dismissed so he could address the judge. Once the jury was out of the courtroom, he asked the judge to let a, quote, psychologist come in and prove that the jury had been subconsciously influenced by pre-trial publicity. Don't think he came up with that all on his own. <laughs> Future celebrity defensive attorney, F. Lee Bailey. Oh, shit. Yeah, actually had a case he was waiting to argue on that same issue pending in Supreme Court at that time. The judge almost allowed it, however, ultimately dismissed it on the basis that psychiatry was a science not recognized in court at that time. Not Most believe he actually dismissed the motion because he refused to allow the trial to be postponed for a year. The jury filed back into the courtroom and the trial everyone had been waiting for began. Now, the prosecution team was set to call at least 30 witnesses to the stand during their portion of the trial. They were trying to prove that Schmidt committed two premeditated murders in an effort to cover up a murder he had committed prior to that. That's right. Let that sink in for a moment. No, Schaefer was using a case which had yet to be tried against Schmidt as the foundation to try the man for murder in the case being presented. Yeah, go for it. Fuck it. Yeah. So, I mean, that is like unprecedented. You know, because they can't bring up a, you know, a crime that hasn't been, you know. During his opening statement, he outlined for the jury the events as he believed they occurred, which was almost verbatim what Richie had told him. Tinney tried to counter Schaefer's timeline by saying that Richie was the one who had a motive to murder Gretchen because of their ongoing animosity towards one another. Tinney said Richie was the one who committed the horrific crime, but he was going to take the stand and point a finger at Schmidt. After all, he needed a good scapegoat to pin the murder on other than himself. <laughs> Shut up, Daddy. Hey, that's what my kids say. That's kind of weird, huh? I know. <laughs> I'm a good girl. Ew. <laughs> so, de- no, then Nancy Fritz... Gretchen and Wendy's mom took the stand. Schaefer had her identify articles of clothing found at the burial site as belonging to her daughters. Then on cross-examination, she told the jury that Gretchen and Schmidt's relationship was courteous. She even admitted that Gretchen didn't care for Richie in the least. Right? So then the detectives took the stand and stated that when they uncovered the jawbone of one of the skulls, they also found a guitar string nearby. However, the prosecution didn't have any photographic evidence support where it was found in relation to the remains. You know, they didn't take the pictures like they should have. Damn it. Yeah, so by the time the remains of the Fritz sisters were located, the corpses were too decomposed to accurately determine a cause of death. <laughs> I just think it's stupid they were looking for a guitar missing a fucking string because mm. I, I just started thinking about that. You know, I've got I've got a lot of guitars, man. <laughs> I you do. I've got a few. And just you know, right here. <laughs> yeah, just, just in here alone, there's what? The one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven or eight guitars just here. Yeah. That's just. I see five room. right off the bat. Yeah. I'm thinking in cases. Yeah. Anyways, um, you know, if I break a string, even on one that I don't use very often, like the uh, like the art core that's sitting over here on the side. Right. I'm replacing the strings now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're popping a string off of a guitar, killing somebody with it. If you're a, a guitar player at all, strings aren't that expensive. Like, even now, they've gone up a little bit because my strings are a little spendy. But, um, yeah, <laughs> it's not like you can't go down and go, hey, I need a pack of fucking strings. Yeah. And in 1960-something. Yeah, they're probably like fucking a penny or some shit. Yeah, probably. Like <laughs> penny candy. <laughs> oh, I know her. Boy, do I know her. I thought they were two. <laughs> By the way. Penny and candy. No. How's your mom? Uh, shut up. I'm just asking. I'm concerned. Anywho. Fuck. You're so, so mean to me. So there was no proof that either one could have been strangled with the item in question. They were also said that they were able to locate Schmidt's guitar at a local pawn shop. However, they had no definitive proof that the guitar string they allegedly found at the dump site belonged to that specific instrument. 
Irma Jane Hole, one of Schmidt's acquaintances, took the stand and talked how talked about how she had once questioned Schmidt about why he did whatever Gretchen wanted him to do. She claimed that he told her he did that because Gretchen had gotten a hold of his journal, which had detailed him committing a murder. Then Irma testified that he had told her about the boy and the fatal car accident of his former girlfriend. And she also said that he told her that he absolutely hated Gretchen. Then John Saunders and Mary French. Now, John Saunders had already taken a plea agreement, right? When he was called to the stand, however, no matter what question he was asked, he replied with, I plead the fifth. After so many of those, Tinney objected to his testimony on the grounds, quote, it was prejudicial in front of the jury, and the judge sustained the objection and removed John from the stand. Now, he did that because he had heard rumors about what they did to snitches in jail. Yeah, so he didn't want anything bad to happen. So then Mary French took the stand, and as, sh- as soon as she was sworn in, Tinney objected to her mere presence on the ground that she could only offer testimony at a- about a crime for which there was no body. However, the judge overruled the objection. After she gave a detailed statement about the brutal murder of Eileen Rowe, it was time for the defense team to ask the questions. During the cross-examination, Tinney just tried to get her to admit that she was only there testifying for two reasons, both of which she denied. One, she was mad at Schmid, and two, she was jealous of Gretchen. I'm so mad at him. I didn't even know he was that short. Jesus Christ. I know. He's like two feet tall. He can't even reach my boobs. I mean, (laughs) he could have at least told me, you know, or at least make an effort. Jump, motherfucker. Jump. Right? So Paul Graff was subpoenaed, and they brought him in from New Orleans to testify as a hostile witness. And this is basically how he responded to the questions. Yes, he and Schmidt were roommates for a period of time in the past. Yes, Schmidt to- did tell him about how he murdered a girl in the desert with Mary and John. Yes, On Schmidt- a horse with no name? Yeah. Yes, Schmidt did ask him to go see the girl's graves. No, he did not go with him when he was asked. Then on cross-examination, Tindy managed to get Paul to talk about how Richie and Gretchen had bad blood between them. But then when pressed further, Paul denied ever hearing anybody talk about a journal. Then Mr. and Mrs. Bill Morgan testified. The next two people called by the prosecution were Mr. and Mrs. Bill Morgan. This was a couple that Schmidt let live with him for a little bit, and they were around when he was dating Gretchen. Bill is also the person who Schmidt partnered with for the upholstery business that didn't pan out. Bill testified that Schmidt talked to him about murdering the teenage boy and cutting off his hands. He was also able to testify that he had heard Schmidt talking about a journal that Gretchen had taken from him with details of that murder. Then he told the jury that Schmidt told him that he wanted to kill Gretchen. Bill's wife's testimony was almost exactly the same because she had heard about the murder and the journal. She said she even heard the threat. However, she did add that she didn't take Schmidt's threats seriously. Then Richie Bruns testifies. Then it came to the moment everyone had been waiting for. Richie Bruns took the stand to testify against Schmidt. While he was being questioned, he gave his responses in an unwavering tone. He never once became agitated or frustrated. He kept his eyes up. If he wasn't looking Schmidt dead in the eye, he was looking at the jury or the prosecutor when he told the court about the events he was involved in. On cross-examination, Tinney tried everything he could think of to rattle Richie. He tried accusing him flat out of committing the murders himself. But Richie's resolve couldn't be shaken. The only thing Tinney managed to get out of the whole cross-examination process was minimal at best. Richie admitted that he was not fond of Gretchen, but that didn't mean that he wanted her to die. Then Gloria Andrews was called to the stand. She said that she was at Schmidt's house the evening that Gretchen and Wendy went missing. According to her, he got a call from Gretchen, and when he hung up, he announced to whoever was listening in the room, I'm going to get that bitch if it's the last thing I do. That's what I would said to. I know. She said after that, he left the house with Paul, and he was carrying what appeared to be an old black briefcase. Now, as he got back to the house at approximately 1 a.m., Gloria stated that at some point after the guys returned, she overheard Schmid telling Paul to keep his mouth shut, and then Paul responded by saying he wasn't in it and wasn't going to get in it. Gloria told the jury that when Schmidt came back in the house, he was dirty and disheveled. A short time after that, Paul left carrying, quote, two large butcher knives with him. Later the next day, Schmidt called Gloria and told her that he heard Gretchen was missing and now he could go out with anyone he wanted. 
I really don't know why the prosecution called her to the stand because her testimony basically contradicted everything Richie said in his about Schmid murdering Gretchen and Wendy on his living room floor. When Gloria stepped down, the prosecution rests, rested their case and Tinney again entered a motion for a mistrial. He based his argument on, quote, that no evidence had been produced. The judge overruled his motion, saying the evidence was not weak from a legal standpoint. Now, it's time for the defense, of course, to present their case. Tinney started by calling a few witnesses who basically were just there to tell their jury about the hostile relationship between Gretchen and Richie. Most of them said that on August, on August 16th, Paul wasn't even at Schmidt's party. Tinney, Tinney wanted that entered into testimony so he could contradict the testimony given by Gloria a little earlier. Now get this, several of these witnesses also admitted to the court that after Richie went to the police and confessed, they had talked about icing him for being a squealer. Yeah, the intelligence of the Arizona youth in the 60s. It's captivating. It's the mark of the squealer. I know, right? Then what Tinney did next, I think, was probably his worst mistake. In his opening statement, he told the jury that his client had a solid alibi for the night of the murder. He said that Schmidt had been at his parents' house the whole night. So he proceeded to call Schmidt's parents to the stand to confirm the alibi. He started with Schmidt's dad. Charles Sr., under oath, said practically shredded his son's alibi right in front of him. He said that on the night of August 16th, his son, quote, was definitely at his own house, and he definitely was having a party. Oh, well, damn, play that funky music, white boy. Yeah. So then Catherine, in an effort to try and salvage his client's case, Tinney called Schmidt's mother, Catherine, to the stand. She said that her husband must be mistaken because Charlie had come over and watched television with us for a while. She even told the jury that, quote, all of Charlie's guitar chords were gray. Therefore, the one presented by the prosecution couldn't be her son's because the one found in the desert was black. Her boys. <laughs> hey, boys and girls. Can you say enabler? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. I want to kick her in the twat. I know, right? So once Catherine stepped down, they, Tinny called in a couple more random witnesses. One of them was the man from Richie's alibi. Richie said that he and this man had been hanging out together all night on August 16th. However, this guy took the stand and said that he and Richie didn't even see each other on the night in question. After that, both rested and delivered their closing arguments. Huh? Oh. Once the prosecution and the defense gave their closing arguments, Judge Garrett gave the jury their instructions. Then they filed out of the court, courtroom to deliberate the case the case of the state of Arizona, the Charles Howard Schmidt Jr. A little over two hours later, they filed back into the courtroom. The gallery held their breath in silence, waiting for the verdict to be read. Guilty. The penalty, death. Sighs of relief were heard from Gretchen and Wendy's family and friends. However, those who were supporting Schmidt gasped in horror. But it wasn't over yet. Schmidt still had to face justice in another trial. Now, after Schmidt's first trial was over, Tinney was very interested to find out what was going to happen with the appeal that F. Lee Bailey had pending in the Supreme Court. It was for the case against Dr. Sam Shepard and based on jury prejudice from pretrial publicity. Since the issue hadn't been decided yet and it might have an impact on Schmidt's case, he pushed for the Aline Bro trial to be postponed. This time, he argued his motion in front of Judge Mary Ann Ritchie. Apparently, she felt his motion had merit, so she granted a postponement, and the Aline Rowe trial was moved from October, I mean, March 15th to October 4th. Not quite a year like he had hoped, but it was a little over six months, and he could work with that if it weren't for another teeny tiny issue. After Judge Garrett sentenced Schmidt to the death penalty, the execution date was set. As of that moment, Charles Howard Schmidt Jr. was scheduled to, for death by lethal injection on June 17th. Well before October 4th. Schmidt thought he was going to be executed by the state before he faced a jury for the murder of Aline Rowe. He even demanded that he, quote, be allowed to testify under sodium pentothal. However, it wasn't within the purview of the court to grant such a request. But it was within their power to postpone his execution, which they did pending an appeal. Schmidt didn't seem pleased with the way Tinney defended him in his first trial. So he tried reaching out to another attorney. He contacted Percy Foreman. Foreman told him that he wasn't able to take on the case at that moment. However, during their conversation, Foreman did criticize Tinney's choice not to use psychiatric testimony in his client's defense. After all, that is usually standard operating procedure in a capital murder case. After he heard Schmidt give an interview on the local radio station, Foreman called F. Lee Bailey and asked him if he would be interested in taking the case. Now, for those who don't know who I'm talking about, here's a little background. F. Lee Bailey 
was a high-profile American criminal defense attorney, and he captivated the nation when he took over as lead counsel in the second State of Ohio versus Sam Shepard case in 1961. That was a case of a prominent surgeon in Ohio who had been accused of bludgeoning his wife to death. After the success of that case, he took on several more high-profile cases, including Albert DeSalvo, who was suspected of being the Boston Strangler, Patty Hearst's bank robbery trial when she was involved with the Symbionese Liberation Army, and he was an integral member of the Dream Team defense in the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson when he was being tried for the murder of his ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Now, when Foreman called Bailey to see if he would have any interest in defending Schmidt during his second trial, he showed an interest. In fact, he thought he had a good chance of, quote, cracking this case wide open, like he had done with the Shepard case, especially since there seemed to be as much, if not more, publicity involved. The first thing Bailey recommended Schmidt do was take a polygraph test with a qualified expert. That was important. He, then he met with Tinney to find out why there wasn't any psychiatric testimony in the first trial. Reports indicate that Tinney told Bailey there had been psychiatric examinations and the results would scare the pants off any lawyer. So obviously he didn't want it submitted, right? I tried really hard to find copies or excerpts from those evaluations. However, my search turned up nothing. After talking to Tinney, Bailey left Tucson because he didn't see a reason to get involved in the defense if they weren't if they couldn't use the test psychiatric testimonies however he changed his mind and said he would do it on two conditions he would be lead counsel and tinny would be would only be involved as co-counsel and they had to find a way to pay him for his time tinny and schmidt were able to pull together approximately are you ready for this 36 dollars but then diane you know his child bride and her mother decided it was best if she sued for divorce before the second trial started. Therefore, any funds Schmidt was able to raise on his own would go to her. <laughs> so that kind of threw a wrench in their plan to bring Bailey on board. But in June of 1966, Schmidt's parents paid for Bailey's retainer and he joined the case. It wasn't long after that when the U.S. The United States Supreme Court issued their ruling on the Sam Shepard case. They stated that Shepard did not receive a fair trial due to all the prejudicial publicity. It was a huge victory for Bailey's career, so he took over Schmidt's case with an enormous amount of confidence. Perhaps it was a little too much. Bailey brought in the best polygraph expert in the nation that he could find. He said that if the results of the test determined that Schmidt was being untruthful, he would just hand the results over to Catherine and pretend like it was never administered. Schmidt's polygraph exam took 10 hours. When Bailey received the examiner's report, he publicly announced that he was taking over the case. His first move was for him and Tinney to argue that the case be removed from the jurisdiction of the state of Arizona and placed in the jurisdiction of the United States District Court. However, in the end, the only thing they were able to do was postpone the Aline Road trial from October 4th to April 3rd. After that, they were able to get a continuance, which pushed the trial out to May 10th, and Bailey didn't arrive in Tucson until May 9th. But he arrived fully prepared to defend Schmidt. He was basing his entire defense on the absence of a body, thereby implying if there is no body, there is no murder, right? So prior, okay. yeah. So prior to the start of the second trial, Bailey and Tinney tried their best to negotiate Schmidt's charges down to second-degree murder. However, Schaefer wouldn't agree to those terms. Finally, right before the trial began, they asked him again, and he finally accepted. Bailey took the offer to Schmidt and told him that it was his best interest to take the plea deal for the lesser charges, because if he took it all the way to jury, he would most likely be found guilty because the jury pool was already prejudiced against him. Rather than accept the deal, Schmidt wanted to fire both of his defense attorneys and start over. However, his father talked him out of it. The trial proceeded, and it started off almost the same as the previous one. Mary took the stand to give her testimony. Then when Saunders was called to the stand, he refused to even participate. However, the judge ruled that Saunders' preliminary hearing testimony could be used as a substitute for his trial statement, which was a major blow to the defense's case. The day after that, Bailey said that he was ill, so he wouldn't be in court that day. By then, Tinney had convinced Schmidt to accept Schaefer's offer to plead guilty to second-degree murder. When they finally located Bailey to tell him, they later said that he didn't look ill at all. Reports also indicate that Bailey told them, quote, the jury was set to hang him. Therefore, accepting the plea bargain was the only way to save his life. 
Right before he signed the deal, Schmidt hesitated again. But then after thinking about it for a moment, he finally relented and he pled guilty to second-degree murder. Bailey argued that he should be ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment rather than be sent to prison. Um, did I miss something? Wasn't he already going to be executed for the murder of the Fritz sisters? I thought, right? but I'm sitting over here staying quiet. Yeah. So, yeah, the judge said that he would decide the matter at the sentencing hearing. When Bailey was interviewed about the case later, he told reporters, quote, he believed Schmidt was to be guilty before the trial even started, despite the results of the lie detector test. However, many people who read and heard about the case at the time fully believed that the famous F. Lee Bailey saw that he didn't have a chance of winning the Schmidt case. And instead of proceeding and doing his best, he simply jumped ship and ran from the inevitable. Rather than appeal the verdict through the court, Schmidt thought he would have more success if he wrote to the judge and personally asked him to order another trial. In the letter, he stated that he should be granted a retrial, quote, because his lawyers had coerced his guilty plea. He also said that if he were granted a new trial, he would produce Eileen's body and prove to everyone that her cause of death was not the result of a blow to the head. The judge responded and said that he would set, let Schmidt appear before him and officially file a motion and officially filed a motion for a new trial on June 12th before he was to be sentenced. The judge also requested that a new lawyer be rep appointed to represent Schmidt. Judge Rolstein also ordered Schmidt to be evaluated by two separate psychiatrists prior to the date of the hearing. However, Schmidt refused to comply with the testing, so he quickly withdrew his motion. At the sentencing hearing, Rolstein gave him a life sentence with a minimum of 50 years. After Schmidt heard the judge's sentence, he said, I'd prefer death. Right? It's like, you know what? Just kill me now. So while Schmidt was in jail, he had take, taken a liking to Sheriff Walden Burr. On June 23rd, he informed Burr that he was ready to take them to the location where he buried Aline's remains. Burr took him out to the area, and Schmidt pointed out a couple of places he thought he had put her. But after digging in those areas, the authorities didn't turn up anything. Then, on like the third or fourth attempt, they found this, a set of skeletal remains and an autopsy verified that the bones did belong to Aline. However, despite Schmidt's claim that she was not bludgeoned in the head with a rock, the coroner's report refutes that. According to the autopsy, the base of Aline's skull had clear fractures and evidence of dried blood. Therefore, the coroner concluded that the fractures to her skull were inflicted while she was still alive. The search team also located a rock near where the remains were buried that had dried specks of blood baked into it, and testing of the rock and blood determined that it was most likely the rock that caused her death. When Schmidt was confronted with the coroner's findings, he appeared to be shocked. However, he didn't resist being taken back to prison to await his execution. Aline's loved ones, although devastated by her death, were relieved to know that her case could officially be closed. Now, Charles Schmidt Jr. was sent to the Arizona State Penitentiary to sit on death row and wait for the state to execute him for the murder of the Fritz sisters. However, he didn't just wait idly for that day to arrive. In fact, he made several attempts to try to escape from the facility. One time, since Schmidt was so small in stature, he was able to crawl inside of a hollowed-out gymnastic-style exercise horse. <laughs> yeah. That's How awesome. I know, right? However, the authorities discovered him before he was able to get out of the facility. He wasn't going to let that deter him. He just had to try harder. So the next time, he tried faking a suicide attempt. But alas, he failed again. In 1971, Schmidt was granted a reprieve when the state of Arizona and Arizona Department of Corrections put the kibosh on their death penalty temporarily. However, he still had to remain in prison because of the 50-year sentence. So he tried to escape again, and believe it or not, he actually succeeded this time to get out of the facility. Schmidt's freedom was cut short when a, rail, when a railroad worker who he had gone to school with saw him walking down the tracks. Although Schmidt tried to be inconspicuous by wearing a blonde wig, the guy said it was the ridiculous wig that caught his attention. <laughs> then he realized it was Smitty. Needless to say, he was quickly apprehended and returned to the penitentiary. After that, Schmidt appeared to accept his fate. He legally changed his name to Paul David Ashley and focused his attention on writing essays in music to stay busy. He said that he made an attempt to read Crime and Punishment by the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. Have you read that? Nope. Oh, I think we read it in high school. <laughs> However, Schmidt was confused by the, how the main character Raskolnikov, 
Kolnikov, excuse me, who killed two women could be, quote, plagued by guilt and remorse. Even though he related to the character's actions, he couldn't comprehend the character's thoughts and feelings regarding those actions. You want to know why? Because he's a psychopath? No, because you must be at least this tall <laughs> to feel guilt and remorse. <laughs> I bet you he, I bet you that... Uh, to ride that ride, <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure old Schmitty there is just worried about little shit. <laughs> I think I think you're right. <laughs> Considering the fact that he was so damn small, he strutted around the prison with an attitude that he was better than anyone else. I know why he was the only one who can ride the rats. <laughs> He's like, giddy up, my mighty steed, and they're all squeak squeak squeak, and they try to get him out. You're so dumb. One Saddle day. up, <laughs> mount up. <laughs> One day, two of his fellow inmates were sick of his bullshit, so they ambushed him. I guess you could say they knocked him down a size of two. Damn, if he gets much goddamn smaller, <laughs> he's going to disappear. Yeah, when the prison officials found Schmidt, he was lying on the ground with a pool of blood spreading around him. He had been stabbed. He was rushed to the hospital, and the doctor later stated that he had suffered approximately 20 stab wounds to his chest and face. Oh, is that all? Those yeah. are amateur numbers. He had to have surgery to remove one of his eyes and to repair the sucking wound that he had in his right chest. Now, a sucking chest wound occurs when air is sucked into the thoracic cavity through the chest wall instead of the lungs through the airways. And this happens because air will always take the path of least resistance. Therefore, the chest wound is approximately the size of a penny or larger. Doctors anticipate a sucking chest wound to occur. Mm, sucking. I know. The wound in Schmidt's chest didn't respond very well to surgery, and he was still in ICU trying to recover 10 days after being stabbed when his systems began to fail. And on March 30th, 1975, he succumbed to his wounds and was pronounced dead. Now, the Department of Corrections contacted his parents to inform them that their son had died and asked them what they should do with his remains. Catherine and Charles Sr. requested that they just bury him in the prison cemetery. I don't blame him, man, because he's yeah. a fucking asshole. Yeah. So... I'll admit that when this case first came to my attention, I was struck by the images I found of Charles Smith. I'm sure when you look at the pictures, you'll see for yourself just how ridiculous he looked when they arrested him. However, the deeper it got into the story, the more intrigued I became. If Schmidt would have put more thought into what he wanted to accomplish, I believe he could have literally gotten away with murder, especially since he committed his crimes in the mid-60s, which was tumultuous time for American youth to begin with. As you heard earlier, when the girls disappeared and the authorities couldn't turn up any solid leads, they ultimately assumed they were runaways. It's, you know, there were two very specific reasons why Schmidt would be wound up getting caught by the authorities. I'm pretty sure you probably picked up on those reasons when you heard the story. However, in the event that you miss it, I'll tell you. There's 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 a saying that goes, two people can keep a secret only if the other one is dead. Although the statement is harsh, there is truth to it. The more people that know about something, the chances are higher that someone else will find out about it as well. Everyone doesn't process events in their life the same way. Some people have to process things internally. You know, they work it around in their mind until they can wrap their hand around it, and then they store it in their mind vault. Mm, wrap their hand around it. I said head. Mm, no. <laughs> no, that, that, that plays in, too. That, <laughs> then there are some tracks. people process things physically. In other words, they have to roll it over in their mind while engaging in some sort of physical activity, whether that be swimming, jogging, cycling, or fighting. Once they processed it, they store it in their mind vault. Some people, like me, process things verbally. They have to say what they're thinking out loud to separate their jumbled thoughts. I personally don't have to be talking to anyone. I just have to say the words out loud. <laughs> so, therefore, chances are that with regards to the murder of Von Rowe, they would have all been caught eventually. Granted, there is a possibility that they all would have kept their mouth shut about it. However, the probability of that happening wasn't very high, especially when you consider how quickly Mary French rolled when she found out he had gotten a wife. Now, mistake number two. When I was going over this case the other day, I was trying to... Remember when I was talking to you, I was like, what is the term, right? And it's... My my grandpa used to call it diarrhea of the mouth. At oh, totally. First, yeah. At first, I tossed around the term loquacious because that's the term that refers to a person who talks a lot, often about stuff that doesn't... That only they think is interesting. However, that wasn't it. Then it hit me. The term I was looking for was garrulous. That is a person who just won't stop talking and talking and talking. Well, you get the picture. 
It seemed like Schmidt told anyone and everyone who would wanted to pay attention that he had murdered at least three, if not four people. This was evident during his trial for murdering the Fritz sisters. Look how many witnesses the state called to give testimony to that fact alone. Mike Gampa would have said that the only way Schmidt that would have told Schmidt that the only way he could keep a secret was if he were dead. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Right. So granted, there is actual diagnosable illness that can affect people this way, and it's called logorrhea. That is really the pathological inability to stop talking or to shut the hell up. That was diarrhea. No, it's logorrhea. The log <laughs> prefix comes from the Greek word for words, and yes. rhea is from the Greek word rain, which means to flow, so it literally translates words flow through. Oh my God, that means that Diarrhea is very accurate because it yes. rains from the butt. Yes. And uh, not just being gross, but I'm like, that's just, I, I feel like I learned something. Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to criticize or make light of an actual illness that people have and can't control. However, I do not believe that Schmid had that, suffered from that illness. I think he had what's commonly referred to as little man syndrome. And he was self-conscious by this, his small stature, so he had to make himself bigger in other ways. Some guys who are shorter in stature tend to buy larger material items, such as vehicles, houses, boats, and so forth. Others, however, like Schmidt, attempt to make themselves appear bigger by trying to get others to believe they are tougher despite their size. I'm not going to mention big trucks. And Kiss little men. my ass. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love your truck. Um, I th- also think that his parents had a lot to do with it. Not for the murders he committed, because when he was an adult, when he made those choices. However, they should be held accountable, especially his fucking mother, for always playing the enabler. It seems like they never held him accountable for anything while he was growing up. If little Charlie wanted something, he didn't have to earn it. It was just handed to him. Little Charlie wasn't expected to do well in school. He wasn't expected to, to do anything with his life. And when little Charlie felt like quitting because he was bored or it got too hard, rather than making him follow through with his commitments, he was allowed to quit. That's not teaching little Charlie how to be a responsible, productive member of society. Uh, teach him how to be a little fucking asshole. Yeah. Rather than teach little Charlie how to give back to the world by doing better, they taught little Charlie how to take from the world by having others do for him what he could do for himself. So um, there was some question about whether he was involved with the disappearance of a four-year-old girl named Sandra Hughes. She was last seen by her family right before she left for school on September 10th, 1965. Now, there was a lot of articles on whether Schmidt was involved or not, right? So I kept digging, and she was actually found um, on January 15th, 1966. Uh, She was found alive and well, and it turns out that she had a quarrel with her mother the night before or the morning of her disappearance, which caused her to run away. So... You know, there is that. But I do have a couple of questions for you. Um, I want to know. Let's see. I know that I didn't give you my opinion about this, but do you think it's probable that Schmidt did kill a teenage boy like he claimed? Oh, fuck yeah, man. Yeah. Psycho there. man. You know, and it wouldn't even take much. He would just, you know, the the kid could have been like an inch taller than him. And yeah. he felt intimidated. Yeah. Because this guy, <laughs> this guy here is truly a piece of garbage. That's that's all I could say about this guy. He's fucking. Yeah. Just having that inferiority complex is just. It, yeah. It, it, it sounds like it consumed his life. It did. I think it did. I mean, I, I did ask if you think that it, um, the alleged encounter he had with his birth mother was true. You know, where he supposedly went to find her and she said she didn't ever want him and he needed to just leave. I don't know. That could be marginal. Yeah. I, uh, I have a hard time with that one only because of all the bullshit that he's already laid out. Right. So, yeah. Uh, 50-50. Okay. So, not my last question is, would Schmidt have gone on to commit more murders if Richie didn't have the extreme guilt and paranoia that caused him to go to the authorities? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a given, man. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. Because he feels empowered. It's, a, it's, it's the same reason why... People who are abusive continue to be abusive. Right. And it's also the reason why people who are abused, when they do abuse others, it's to somebody who's lesser than they are. Gonna, so, yeah, smaller and weaker. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's empowering. Yeah. And he... Yeah. I think in his heart of hearts, he felt very weak 
Yeah. Or knew that he was very weak. Yeah. And in return, he wanted to empower himself, and he did it in in the wrong way. I mean, the, the right way to do that is to honestly just be a good person. Right. You know, uh, do things Make that... Make something of yourself. Yeah. Do things that benefit others. Do things that benefit yourself. You know, and just be a decent person. People will fucking notice that. Right. Um, and instead, he said he said to himself, you know, hey, I'm going to go do all this fucked up shit because I need to feel that power. Right. No, I agree with you. Totally agree with you. But, um... And I'm sorry, I had to walk away from the mic and get a sandwich. But my blood sugar just all of a sudden tanked. Oh, you're fine. You're and fine. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I'm diabetic. So that's always fucking fun. Life goes on. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> my shit comes to a screech and halt when my well, blood sugar gets too low. I meant life low. goes on as in I carry it on. Carry on my wayward son. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that was the case of Charles Schmid. A.K.A. the Pipe Piper of Tucson. I call him the dumbass of fucking Tucson. I man. know. The fucking can't keep his fucking mouth shut. What a fucking idiot, man. I know. Christ. All right, folks. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. You can check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. There's even a new feature called Meet the Band. You get to kind of meet me and the guys that I get to be have the honor and privilege of playing music with. Videos and shit like that are going to be coming very soon. Uh, what else? Uh, check us out on Medium Crime Beat on Medium. Wherever you get your blogs, just put in at Brutal Nation. We'll pop right up for you. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved. And we will see you guys for our freaky fetish Friday. Oh, spank me, big daddy. Oh, I will. Yeah. Get in my van, little girl. Oh, my God. What? Okay. <laughs> Is it wrong that I want to rub butter on my girlfriend's nipples? Maybe not your girlfriend, but on a little girl, yeah. Well, I'm just saying that the girl next door. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Jesus fucking Christ. All right, you guys. You guys have yourselves a good, safe night. And if you're going to murder somebody, by all means, send us a goddamn email. Cause Let us be, know. Give us a heads up. Give us a heads up, man. We'll feature you on the show. It's all good. That's right. I'm not a cop. I can't, I'm not going to turn your fucking ass in. That's right. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.